0: quick come up with something funny to say
1: hello yo oh that's really cool
0: somehow i think you're lying Uh uh-huh
1: oh fail Uh bad philosophy episode 40 recorded on july 26 2009 metamathic smackdown Hello, everyone. Welcome. in one, two, bad philosophy, upsetting the balance of reality, one rabbit trail at a time. And it's our 40th episode, oh everybody. We have done this 40 times. Oh, my God. I, I can't believe it. Um, we've got an oldie but a goodie here on the show. Uh, someone you may have heard before on way back in episode four, um, exactly one order of magnitude less than this <laughs> one. That is Benjamin Brown.
2: Yes. Hello. I'm Benjamin Brown. Uh, sometime KTXT EJ, you may remember that. Yeah, former.
1: We also had him on actually um, more recently than that to talk about the demise of KTXT. So but that's neither here nor there. Exactly, it's moved on. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've also got regular Kevin Saunders skyping in from
2: Grapefine Still
1: no video this week, Kevin. Is it, you said you're on a different computer?
0: Yeah. No, I was borrowing my mother's computer. She had, she got one of those brand new uh, e not the the Acer mini uh, netbooks for her birthday. Oh, okay. And I was using that last week.
1: Well, we're glad to have you on the show. This week we're going to talk about something that uh, the three of us are very familiar with, which is uh, the novel Anathem by a guy named Neil Stevenson. Now, I, I don't know as much about him. I've read a little bit, um, but Kevin or Ben, would you like to uh, to introduce the author?
2: All right. Um, I'll, I'll talk about Anathem. It's a uh... Well, first, first, who's Neil Stephenson? Stephenson. He's been around. He's been writing since the mid-'80s. He's really famous for several books, uh, all of which I would say are major cultural novels for the the technologically literate nerd society (laughs) that we find ourselves uh, members of. Uh, The Cryptonomicon, which is... um, a layman's introduction to to crypto technology and and methodology as well as being a really awesome historical novel about World War II.
1: cryptography ciphers etc yes et cetera, yeah. yes
2: exactly and also the birth of the internet and, and uh biographical anecdotes about Alan Turing huh. and all sorts of other great and interesting people uh he also wrote The Diamond Age and Snow Crash um the uh, Snow Crash being one of the seminal uh cyberpunk novels actually uh uh, Diamond Age is even a, a post-cyberpunk novel, and I, I'm sure uh, we'll have to get to that terminology later if we mm-hmm. want a deeper discussion. But uh, suffice to say, it's badass, and it's also uh, intellectually stimulating in a way uh, that no other author is really capable of like eliciting in me. Yeah, re-
1: reading through Nathem, I, w- I was just surprised by his... His literacy in so many fields. Everything, and it's um, all—it's
2: all integrated into one whole, you know, chunk of reality conception.
1: Right. We'll get a little bit more into that later, but uh, so Kevin Anathem, uh, you've read it. You said you read it about six months ago. So, um, what what were your impressions of the book? What's kind of a, a brief summary for those fans who have not read it?
0: Who. Oh you, you can 't do a brief summary of that I, I because one a of the because well, one of the things about uh, stephenson 's work um, and Ben you kind of touched on this mm. is that it's it 's very much interrelated, and um, the story uh, one of the things stephenson 's good at is is actually making the story necessary um, i 've read certain uh, science fiction authors uh, and just authors in general who are trying to make a point as well as tell a story and sometimes the point gets in the way of the story.
2: Yes, um, Heinlein.
0: One, one author that can do that occasionally is uh, Heinlein, who is a favorite author of mine, but that happens, whereas Stephenson generally focuses on the story first, and the, the scientific elements and philosophical elements always come out of... Hmm.
2: One uh, thing I noticed about uh, Stephenson that makes him different from Heinlein is that Heinlein will always have his mouthpiece uh, really obvious, Uh, In one book, say, for example, uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Mm. Heinlein, Uh, the character Professor de la Paz is very obviously Robert Heinlein, as if he was from Argentina and on the moon. (laughs) The thing is –
0: and that's 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 sort of a good point except for the fact that Heinlein's book vary in – they don't all have the same political or mental or anything viewpoint. There's always a mouthpiece character, but it's not always necessarily Heinlein's mouthpiece, which Mm -hmm. is sort of a tricky thing with him. Um, You compare The Moon is a Harsh Mistress – to uh, starship troopers, you, you can't argue that those things are in favor of the same sort of political ideals by any no. stretch of the imagination. No, That may be more story of
2: Heinlein's changing opinions about things more than his... No, uh... it's, it's actually
0: not. Um, Heinlein's opinions didn't change very much over the years. Um, he, uh, if, you want, if you want to kind of get a, a, a grasp on how Heinlein wasn't actually a mouthpiece in his books, although it certainly seemed like it, go read Ra 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 by Spider Robinson, Oh, okay. Um, He's the one who actually
2: variable star, right?
0: Uh, yes, he okay. is the guy that wrote Variable Star. He's actually been compared to Heinlein a number of times, which is probably why they got him to write Ra- uh, Variable Star. Yeah. He kind of explains that a lot of the criticisms of Heinlein are actually not accurate, including that one.
1: Okay. So without no. getting uh, getting too inside literature here on this, um, back to Anathem, which mm. is is kind of the, the center of our thing. Anathem um,
0: takes place on a world that is not our own.
1: Right. But it's close to our own. It's it's, it's sort of an alternate reality. Well, and they sort of go into that in the book. Yeah. Which is important
0: um, to the story. And um, one of the things that kind of, some some crap that Stephenson got when it first came out um, was that he used a lot of made-up words for things that didn't need to have made-up words. Um, I disagree. Well, no, he got crap for that. Um, yeah. If you look at, uh, there was an XKCD about it, I think we mentioned it yes. at one point. Yes. You know the the rate of quality versus made up words. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And the alt text actually said, "I'm looking at use anathem." I, uh, well,
1: in retrospect, though, I mean, in comparison to some other sci-fi novels, anathem was was relatively sparse. On oh yeah, made up or words. you know, you
0: compare it to any well, Tolkien book ever made. There's
2: a Tolkien, point to the the made up dune? words. I mean, on. I never read dune. Yeah, I, I love the the made up words. I think they they help under uh, make you understand what he's trying to say. Um, You know, basically, during the course of the novel, he's reconstructing, uh, you know, a germ of, of modern scientific thought. And to do that, he has to basically start from nothing. And you shouldn't have any preconceptions about what he's going to say. By introducing these concepts with their alien labels he forces you to think more critically about them as he introduces them, or reintroduces them to you. And
1: very often, though, um, he, he will assign labels to scientific concepts that we know very well. Um, for instance, the in Anathem, the Pythagorean theorem, or what we would yes. know as the Pythagorean theorem, is referred to as the adraconic theorem. Um, there's something called hem space, which is vector space, essentially. Um, and yet there are also sort of alternate names for major philosophers or... Um, kind of confabulations of uh, various philosophers um, or scientists. So he'll he'll kind of he'll kind of combine different historical figures mm-hmm. to, for for narrative simplicity. Uh, sometimes well, it's, actually,
0: it's it's not just for narrative simplicity. It's actually part of the story. Well, right, right. Uh, in that, and can we can we just break the spoiler barrier and just oh, I'm talk of, of course. I mean, we've novel. already okay. here.
1: If if nobody else has, go out and do it. Get the audio book. Yeah. Get the book. Whatever. It's fantastic.
0: Um, but the the fact that these same ideas are found on Arb, the home planet of the book, and Earth is very much a plot point because mm-hmm. the you eventually get the idea that these worlds, um, these alternate realities, are interrelated and influence each other down the Wick, as yes. it's eventually called. Well, let's and let's so, break uh, it
1: down by by the philosophical concepts here. So that that's a, that's a central theme of the book is that there there sort of are these multiple realities and they, they interweave it with metaphysics and quantum mechanics to basically say that that in in hem space there are these um, world tracks that are essentially um, uh, coherent narratives um, separate from each other but sometimes interweaving and what we're what we're essentially experiencing in the novel is a narrative from the first person of, of one of these world tracks and they are visited by uh, people from another but closely related world track that have figured out how to travel between them by means of um, special relativity and, uh, and, and like high velocity acceleration um, but it is it is an interesting concept and it 's something that comes up in in quantum mechanics a lot is one of the explanations for um, the fact that there are superpositions is that it 's not that um, there is a superposition but both Possibilities do exist, kind of in their own separate worlds. Hmm. Every time there's there's a quantum um, collapse, um, one world track goes one way and one goes another way. It forks, and yeah. there are consistent uh, stories you can tell about only certain scenarios. Like you can't you can't necessarily tell a consistent story about an ice cube uh, existing in the center of a star, which is one of the, the analogies he uses. Mm-hmm. That just you know, we, we don't have any way to get from our universe to that universe. Um, however, if the initial conditions were such that it were possible um, for ice cubes to exist in centers of stars, you could have that, but we don't live in that, in that universe, or we, we didn't start from that, that point and fork off mm-hmm. of it. And it's, you know, I wouldn't say it's universally accepted. I think it's what Feynman came up with, right, um, was the multiple...
2: Uh, parallel realities. Explanation. Yeah, many worlds. Uh, many worlds uh, interpretation. Yeah. I, I don't remember if it was fin- Feynman or, or another fellow. Uh, I'm pretty yeah. sure it was Feynman.
0: I, I I couldn't say. I like Feynman, so I'm gonna go and yeah. say it was him.
1: But <laughs> um, um, what what Stevenson does with it is is essentially uses that to to tell a tale about. I, I don't know. What, what do y'all? Why do y'all think he he? Um, what, what do you think is the point of the novel, or, or what do you think is the main the main? Um, Reason that he used that many worlds uh, scenario
0: okay, I think he was telling a story first and foremost um, and he the the I think that was his starting point, and I kind of mentioned this earlier is that and that 's something that helped him as an author is that his focus is always on the story now he took these scientific ideas um, these theories that we have about how the universe may or may not exist, and told a story that was not based on those, but was necessitated, those those things would have to exist for the story to take place. Right. Um, now, because they're rather weird, complicated ideas, he had to then explain them to everybody so the story could make sense, mm. um, okay. something I think he did a very good job at. Now, mind you, it, he was helped by the fact that um, the, the monkhoods, the... the
1: the yeah uh, the avowed the the oh, convent the the yeah
0: the the convent that these that the Sense. main character lived
1: Consense. in. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I know he changed he changed one letter in the, in the word. <laughs> yeah yeah
0: the convent he lived in, was basically, um, an educational system, mm-hmm. and that really helped explain the ideas to the reader while explaining them in the story. You know he's like there, there's a scene where he's explaining to the little kid the new, the new guy, Hemispace. Yeah. Mm. And he's explaining how it works and all that sort of stuff. And it's a very useful thing for me to get my head around, but also in the concept of the story, he's explaining it to somebody else. Um, and, and Stephenson has always had a really good ability of taking complicated projects and concepts and making them understandable. That's, that's really easy to see in uh, cryptonomicon, which is over, you know, a thousand pages long. Yeah. Um, I think my copy is eleven hundred and change because I have that little really fat paperback version. Mm.
1: Anathem was like thirty-two hours in audio form.
0: Yeah, yeah Anathem is is also massive, mm-hmm. but he's really good at taking these complicated things and, and explaining them in an understandable fashion. Right. Uh, okay. Which is which is a talent definitely that he has without without taking you out of the narrative. Right, I
2: can um, say if, this: um, I read the Broke uh, Cycle recently, and it's a yeah. thirty-five hundred page long epic about um, the transition from a pre-scientific, pre-enlightenment society to the enlightened society and the scientific viewpoint and the scientific method, also the birth of the, the marketplace as we currently understand it, where mm-hmm. concepts like arbitrage and leverage have meaning. The way um, Anathem is about uh, basically have, uh, the scientific perspective and making a story out of that. The Broke Cycle is about the financial system. And he wrote the Baroque cycle uh, in about 2003, 2004, and I think it's it's uh, best to think of uh, uh, Anathem as being written later as a continuation of the same uh, goal, which is having an exciting story. I mean, there's no way I would have slogged through 3,500 pages if the story wasn't interesting. Yeah. Uh, but in, in addition to having a fantastic story with you know great characters and historical relevance and uh, you know cameos from historical figures. Uh, The book was about the birth of the financial system and about how trade happens and about why the gold standard exists and why it's good to have your coins be weighted. And it has all this stuff with Isaac Newton. And there's a little bit of sci-fi with uh, the Solomonic gold and some other stuff. But really, this book is an entertaining way of telling us it's a historical novel and a lesson about the market. Mm. And they couldn't work without each other. But I think the reason that novel exists is to explain the market Otherwise, you can write a swashbuckling tale about pirates and galley slaves in the Mediterranean. <laughs> I could do that, yeah. you know, given enough histor- experience in writing. Well, I don't know, but what Matt. Makes I- I'd like book to see you give a stab is, at that. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I'll try someday. Yeah, right. I'll have to set aside five years of my life. <laughs>
1: well, but I understand what you mean. And I think uh, Anathem in itself was a, an excellent, almost primer in, in very abstract scientific and f- philosophical mm. concepts. Did um, you turn
0: British all of a sudden, Stephen? Primer. Primer.
1: Okay, primer primer whatever, whatever. i you know <laughs> <Shut up>. <laughs> <laughs> it, you, non, you understand the word No, um, I understand
0: the word I just like making fun of you
1: yeah, yeah, you do we we know this kevin um that's but, why you but have yes it strip. was it was a primer in these very abstract concepts with which I was generally familiar uh coming into the book i mean i I have a background in physics and philosophy, and that's those in mathematics are like the three main concepts of this book. Um, and I, I felt kind of, I think I would feel sorry for someone coming into the book without any sort of background in that mm-hmm. whatsoever. I think I appreciated it a lot more. And I know you mentioned this, Ben. It's sort of for us, um, we, we who have kind of developed an interest in these fields. Mm-hmm. But I think someone coming in without knowledge of the concepts would have to read through it twice. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I was able to get a lot of the stuff they were talking about on the first try. Um, Later I don't in the that's
0: book, entirely necessary because I don't. Ha- I have some background in that sort of stuff. I know the Pythagorean theorem. Mm-hmm. But then again, theoretically, so does everyone who graduated from high school in the states. Yeah, but not everyone uh, knows not what a tensor guarantee.
1: is. Not everyone knows I what these concepts.
0: Are. I didn't know those things. Right. Um, I hem space was my first experience with quote unquote hem space. I don't know about vector space. Um, was actually because I really enjoyed learning these sorts of things in the book, and I was I was a little upset at Stevenson for not telling me at the end, you know, somewhere, what these different concepts were. I would have loved a, a translator's guide. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, say, okay, if you want to know what hemispace is on La Terre, which is what he calls Earth, um, this is where to go look. Or if you want to read, I spent a long time trying to figure out the guy who stared at the copper bowl. Um,
1: um, yeah, and then, then the, the one character comes and at the end and he's like, that's Edmund Husserl. Yeah, and who is actually the guy? Yeah.
0: Yes, which is which is thankful because then I could go look that guy up and and read his stuff because I was interested in it. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Cryptonomicon, um, or or the Baroque Cycle, which I've not actually finished reading, I'm about only a hundred pages into it, mm-hmm. so it's on a shelf somewhere. You're in. Full but ride. with with Kryptonomicon, he deals with. Primarily, actual historic people that I can go look up. I can go look up Alan Turing and the other people he worked with, mm-hmm. um, and the the, you know, the invention of the computer. That there's historical data on that, and it's called Alan Turing. I'm not looking for you know Jimmy Christmas, who invented the computer.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I know what you mean, and and I there were a few times when I was a little bit confused about who exactly he was trying to channel with a certain mm-hmm. uh, fictional character. Um, and, and a lot of the terms still like what what was the um Halicarnian and uh Prochian what was that, oh, that goodness, dichotomy gracious. um I,
2: as far as i understand one of them it was basically the the way there's the divide between Aristotelians and Platonists in our world that's what i figured um yeah. i i always understood the Halicarnian as being plato i believe okay and as a uh, uh, pro whatever Pro-ky or pro- yes, or Prochadian yeah. as as the uh, Aristotelian mhm um the differences made sense when I was reading the book. Of course, since then I've you know forgotten a lot of the yeah. of the jargon.
1: Well, the the, um, the oh, what was it the the Sconics were essentially like Kantians, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I mean a lot of the a lot of the stuff did sort of make sense the more I thought about it. But um, there were the way that he kind of introduced the concepts was very different from what I'm familiar with in in uh, history of philosophy. So it was. It was almost a mystery novel in a sense of trying to kind of piece together exactly what he was oh, things weren't al- There to. weren't
2: always one-to-one um, analogs, though. Exactly. Uh, there was the idea of the Hylian Theoric Realm and Hylia, uh, who was almost uh, a Plato yeah. analog, but not quite. Uh, there, we were talking the Halicarnian pro-whatever. Uh, one of those characters combined with this Hylia character... Uh, with a different name being Greek and a male on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> Makes this person, uh, Aristotle, uh, who else was important. Uh, we were talking about the Pythagorean Theum theorem, yeah. uh, analog, or whatever the hell The Adrachonic theorem, yeah. The I, liked,
0: um, I, I don't know if it has an, an Earth analog, but uh, the Praxis Rake, I was very much in favor of. Oh,
1: uh, Diakone's Rake. Yeah, yeah
0: Diakone's Rake, somebody's um, Rake. It's... I Don 't know what the comparison is, but the idea is you can 't love an idea or assume an idea is right just because it 's yours
1: yeah uh, and I, I know i know there's uh, i 've heard of this before, but i i don't i don 't exactly know our, our analog concept well that. it sounds like
2: a discussion of, of like some kind of confirmation bias or something combined in, into uh, a story mm-hmm. uh, yeah. i mean we 're warned about cognitive biases, but they seem to have like almost religious adherence to avoiding them. The way we don't, because their cognitive biases all over the place which <laughs> right. are really funny and awesome, and I can't say no. Such and such as rake, and, and yeah, and, right. And I, I can't slam down like that. But you can. You I, can't I've say actually like,
0: wanted to say that before, and yeah. after reading Anathem, well, I, I almost said get out the rake, and then. I held myself back because people look at me strangely enough as it is.
1: Well, I almost want to start using the uh, the term Yard. Um, steelyard." Uh, I think that that sounds cooler than Occam's razor. They're both yeah. they're both neat terms, and they do mean the same thing. But,
0: yeah, but more people know Occam's razor, and, and that's that's one of my things that I I don't like about Stephenson as much. Is I mean, we briefly talked about this and episode four Stephenson has really been pushing for spec fic or speculative fiction as opposed to science fiction yeah
1: and he uses that term within the novels to refer to yeah. sci-fi what we would call and it's sci-fi.
0: I, I get what he's trying to do but he's kind of stuck up about it a little um, yeah and it's one of those things that no, sci-fi is sci-fi um i i see that you're trying to you know raise yours up above other sci-fi you know okay it's not asimov um, or it's not, it's not your it's not your trashy pulp sci-fi, and that's okay.
1: But they not that Asimov is trashy pulp sci-fi. No, no. <laughs> well, some of Asimov is. Most of uh, Asimov is. We well,
0: kidding? it is, and that's and okay. I like it. Some of Asimov isn't, but some of Asimov's stuff is trashy pulp sci-fi. Some okay. of Heinlein's stuff is. These are okay things. It's not a bad thing to be trashy pulp sci-fi. Um, but Stephenson, from what I've seen of him, some interviews I've seen with him. He, he kind of is, is saying that, well, if it's science fiction, it has to be speculative fiction. It has to be my kind of sci-fi, mm. because that's the only one that has a real purpose. That's the only one that does something good for the world. Not that I care about doing good for the world either. I want a book I can enjoy, which luckily Stephenson writes.
1: Well, and, and I think that that's kind of one of his his points in these, is sort of to convey a worldview, um, a specific oh, worldview. And, and I know his his book... Particularly, Anathem was pushed extremely hard by the uh, the Long Now Foundation, which is of mm-hmm. which he is a part, right? A co-founder or contributor um, or something. Sort right? of,
0: not really. Um, what happened was the Long Now Foundation asked a bunch of authors to design a thousand-year clock, or ten thousand-year clock. Excuse me. Yeah. And Stephenson was one of the authors they asked to do that, and he just kind of scratched something out on a on a paper. About these rings inside of rings, and every ten thousand years the clock would spin around, and you could leave the innermost ring, mm-hmm. um, and that became the the convents of his book.
1: Yeah, and I, that was one of the coolest parts of the books. I thought were were these just massive clocks the, that they use and the uh, wind every day. Yeah, um, yeah. That that you know they're essentially built on on descending objects, sort of like a a water, like clock, a, but, a water clock, but water clock, yeah. With objects we have we tethered. have
0: gravity-based clocks out in the world. Mm-hmm.
1: But I mean, none that big. <laughs> Obviously, uh, and it, and I think that was that was really the cool part is the the central observance of these constants was the winding of the clock every day, what they call provener. And kind of getting more into the the religious uh, philosophy in the book, what did y'all think of that that sort of a religion of science? that he describes with the with the avout in in this mathic world
2: um i don't have a problem with it i'm an atheist let's just get this out of the way uh i i don't i don't have a problem with it because it's not a belief structure per se with faith and everything Mm -hmm. it's just a very very uh, concentrated effort to remain rational and you can you can create activities and
1: what they call um, arts yes. rituals, yeah, essentially. A ri- yeah. You yeah. can
2: you can have a ritualized form of science as long as it maintains its essence as science. I don't have a problem with ritual and tradition and things like that. It seems that humans uh, get along well in an environment containing ritual and tradition and habits. And if that's what it takes to you know to keep reasonable about things and. Always be taking in data and be checking it against your preconceptions and performing Bayesian correction functions on yourself, whatever that, whatever the <laughs> biological equivalent is. As long as we're doing that, it's fine. It'll be strange, and there was culture shock seeing all this science happen in what is basically a convent or or, or, a, or a monastery.
1: Yeah, well, which is has historical precedent. I mean, yes. in our oh, in our God reality does. too, some of the greatest scientists in the world were of of the Catholic Church. Um, like Aquinas was one of our greatest philosophers. Galileo. Galileo, of course, was part of the church. Well, they didn't—they didn't like him after some of the um, some well, of the conclusions he came to. He uh, was originally
0: in the church.
2: Yeah. Well, Mendelev, That's a, probably an even better example. Uh, one of the forerunners of, of genetics. Yeah.
1: You know,
2: he he was—he was looking at, uh, um, you know, dominant and recessive traits and peas or something like that. Yeah. And, um, a regular scientist. You know, the scientist gentleman in Britain at the time. Or even earlier, would have been like, Fah, I'd rather cut up a dead dog. That's, that's more interesting than growing plants. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, sometimes
0: that is more interesting. Maybe not more scientifically useful, but more interesting.
2: It, it's more, it, it hits you in the gut when you learn something about dead dogs and lungs and skulls. And Indeed. Um, someone
1: in our chat room has brought up the term Scientology. I, I don't think that... It, in any way <laughs> applies to what uh, Stevenson is conveying in the in the Mathic world concept. It, it's Scientology is its own beast.
0: There's very little science in Scientology.
1: Precisely. They uh, much
2: like a uh, Christ si- the Church of Christ Scientist, Christian uh, scientists. Christian uh, scientists, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, there's there, the the word science there is used in in a term that you and I and uh, would not think of. Um, it's it's just it's just mincing words. It Scientologists is. Scientologists use this association between the name of their cult. And uh, science, you know, uh, using falsifiability and proving things wrong. There's no proof and justification going on in Scientology. Mm-hmm. Label's completely inaccurate.
0: But they but have they have those they those e meters that read my head with magic <laughs>
1: and science. Oh,
2: right, yeah, dianetics, all that, right? Yeah, it, me- <clears> it measures <the> a <throat> voltage drop between your fingers, and you know, it's in a book.
1: <laughs> yes, it is. I don't think I think we'll thoroughly bash Scientology on another episode, but uh, <laughs> I, I look forward to that. <laughs> particularly, I, I particularly liked the the whole Mathic world concept, and personally, I, I would like sign me up in a heartbeat. Yeah. Um, because I, I'd
2: go into a one year consent. Maybe you'd be y- a Unarian. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd be a Unarian. I'd do it every couple of years, or hell, I would want to go in at age nine or eight and come out at eighteen, being thoroughly educated and yeah. ready to kick ass in the secular world. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a strange term to think about and using. Yeah, uh, there's a strange reversal going on, but it's
1: and it's a variant. It's not uh, letter for letter the word "secular," but it, it but is. It would,
2: would be pronounced "secular" if you yeah, use the, secular the, the secular world. It's
0: one of those little tricks Stephenson does in the book, yeah. "Convent to Consent." You know, secular to secular.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's an interesting dichotomy, though, because really the the secular world in his in Anathem is not. As up on uh, science and rationality and, and all of these philosophical concepts as the mathic world, um, they do have them. They have scientists. It's it's very much the secular world is very much like our world. Yeah, they're, um, they're, it uh, is the world of the now, the contemporary society, whatever happens to be thriving at the moment.
2: With the little cell phones and
1: yeah, and fact, G G's, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, which was his basically his his catch all term for technology.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Super G Job, which is like a little tablet PC. Um,
0: it was it was the iPhone.
1: I, I I think it was a little bit bigger. <laughs> it was the iPhone Plus. Yeah, exactly. It's it's that uh, the Jesus device that Apple's going to come out with at some point. Yeah, um, no, not. But it's it's interesting, kind of how he um, the way that he weaves the historical narrative. Um, he's he's very much epic thinking, like the the fact that history goes through cycles. Yes. The fact that the the mathic world has gone through these. Um, the the sacks the sacks the um, th- what
2: three sacks that there have been right yes. and the way culture and society have completely broken down on separate occasions yeah how, how like
1: cities will be built up around the consents and then yeah. just be destroyed and and,
2: and how um, I remember when they're making the truck through the north and they go through the ruins of the one city and there are the the miners who instead of you know um, going after ore um, are going after structural members of, yeah. of of steel a rebar and concrete and they're they're uh, they're finding it and selling it and the way that he described their job and the way that he described this place, you know, and this, this being a normal thing, there being ruined modern cities lying around here and there. Oh, yeah. Everywhere, yeah. Uh, waiting to be exploited by people. That's scary.
1: Well, but it's, it's the kind of thing that you get when you think on these, on these multi-thousand-year timescales. Mm. Um, one series that I recently got into on the History Channel was the um, Life After People. Oh, goodness. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's based on a book called uh, The World Without Us, uh, and I forget the author's name, but it's essentially a, a scientific speculation of what would happen if humans were to dis- just completely disappear today. You know, mm-hmm. epidemic wipes us out for whatever reason, or, you know, we all get
2: abducted, whatever. Or some kind of radiation flux just kills everything, yeah. with brain larger than or... Um, eh,
1: what would happen to our society? What would happen to our buildings, to our culture? And the scary thing is... We are are much more impermanent than we would like to think. Um, within a thousand years, most of our major cities would be reduced to rubble, um, because weather is a b. <laughs> weather <laughs> will take out everything, uh, given enough time. It's very patient. Uh, it's very thorough, and. Um, Rust is is one of those things that just gets everywhere. Yeah. Um, so, you know, within a thousand years, most cities would be rubble. Within 10,000 years, it would be very hard to find any um, indication of, of human civilization. And within a million years, we would all be oil in the ground. <laughs> mm.
2: So, I think it's, it would be good for me to bring up right now uh, the book Canticle for Leibowitz, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is highly, highly re- uh, related uh, to Anathem and to the whole idea of the impermanence of society. Yeah. Okay, um, quick gist, uh, post-apocalypse, uh, an electrical engineer starts a, a, mola- a monastic order. A Jew starts a, a Catholic monastic order <laughs> that is dedicated to the preservation of knowledge about science, and they end up illuminating science textbooks and things like that. And, and uh, it's, it takes place in three separate time periods, whatever, whatever. But in the, the main character is basically a, a scientist monk much like the avant, mm-hmm. uh, the Avout, whatever, yeah. and uh, a savant. Yeah, uh, he's he's a savant, and he wears robes, and he has his cord, and his orders, and he carries his book around, and he thinks critically about everything. And all the all of the warlords in the world compete for their uh, assistance because they know about boomsticks and fire <laughs> and guns and it bombs. Outfall. Yeah, um, I think it. it yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I, I'm glad that I read Canticle the Leibowitz before mm-hmm. I read Anathem because I think I, uh, I was primed for thinking about uh, post-apocalyptic uh, scenarios, which I mean Anathem doesn't take place during the apocalypse or. Any well, time here. it
1: takes. It, I mean, multiple apocalypses have happened. You yeah. have the horrible events which were essentially. But a, a usually, global usually those war.
2: are the focus of the book, yeah. instead of like, oh, there is an apocalypse. Um, yeah. Kind of a big deal. You should know about it. Uh, uh, the, way, the, the way it's kind of, of treated like that uh, was surprising to me, but also it made the, the whole uh, book seem more real because it did. Uh, I most mean... people, that, you know, out of all the humans that have ever lived, um, only a tiny speck of them are going to experience any one slice of history, and for the rest, uh, history is history, and, and so their, their thinking will necessarily change. I mean, if you're around during the day after tomorrow, and everything's freezing, and your your ape is trying to kill you and eat your flesh, and um,
0: you're running away from the cold. Yes, right?
2: yes. Oh, because that is so effective. Anywho, yeah. I digress. You're crossing
1: the the um, Rio Grande, going south. <laughs> yeah. No, and and, I, and that was one of the big appeals for me in the book was was the the time scale that he was working with was such that. That he could pretty much pull in any technology. Mm-hmm. Um, they they had at this point discovered new matter, um, yeah. which was sort of a a manipulable matter that that was very loosely defined. Yeah, um, yeah, it was magic. It was, it was magic. Yeah, essentially that was that was his way of incorporating magic into the book. And uh, they had also sort of more secretly figured out how to end aging, um, which was how these these thousanders in the thousander math. Um, had survived for so long. Um, and they never really... There was one, uh, Frajad, yeah. who was sort of this, this mysterious old guy that was just with them throughout the, um, the narrative. And he sort of has this ability to, commute, to communicate with other uh, world tracks um, it's never really explained well. It was one I of think those it's beyond
0: even communicating. I think he actually can switch world tracks.
1: Well, that and that's what he yeah. uh, implied near kind of the end, yeah. where um... which
2: is the strangest ending to a book I've ever ever read. Uh, yeah, it wasn't the, the book—that's
1: really... one thing. The book kind of falls apart at the end. It did. I was really disappointed by the ending. Um, like there was this, there was this really well laid out, well constructed narrative all the way up until then, and then it was just like, oh yeah, and by the way, you can switch between world tracks, and nothing is as it seems, and. Oh, actually, it is. <laughs> but, I, I think you know. I think
2: the ending, uh, while was it was not as satisfying as we had been uh, led to hope. Mm-hmm. Um, I think its abruptness was important. It, it left me off balance for a while, and I, uh, I think that's conductive to the the sort of deep thought that uh, I think Stevenson wants us to experience. Four days, four days. I could not think of anything except yeah. for. Hylian Theoric realms, and and I was thinking I was basically in in a science philosophy mode, and I wanted to read Karl Popper. Why I don't know, because I read <laughs> Anathem. That's why. Uh, and the ending creates that uh, that mindset. If 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 the book had a a very satisfying ending, where all everything was resolved, and you were left contented, and and uh, you wanted to move on. That, that, that's what would have happened. I would have moved on. I would have read something else next. No, yeah, instead, that wasn't the case. instead yeah. I had weird dreams about space travel and, and <laughs> quantum world lines and things. You know what I wanted to oh, do? Man, I wanted it, was to, it was great. It was
1: great. I, was I, I agree. Uh, you know what I wanted to do was actually get Stevenson on the show. Um, but I happened to, to go on his website kind of looking for a way to contact him. And I found this, this wonderful, wonderful uh, explanation um, for why he does not do email, essentially, mm. and it is—it was the most, the most eloquently written "Stay the fuck out of my life, so I can work" letter I have ever read. Um,
2: <laughs> well, the man is in the habit of writing thousand-page-long novels every night. Right. Year or two. He
1: basically said, if I if I talked with everyone like individually that wanted to to get in touch with me, I would never get anything done, and it's it's better for me to to spend all my time writing. Um, so that I can convey these, these good ideas that I have to a bunch of people mm-hmm. rather than to spend a lot of time conveying them over and over and over again to individuals. And I was like, T- totally that's right. Fine. Like, I'm all also, right, I'm cool with that. Don't bother me, fanboy. Hey. <laughs> that's, you know, that's if that's, what it if that's really his meant.
2: feeling, then, then so be it. He, I, uh, I'll respect his, his wishes because he's entertained me so much over the years. Yeah. And I think I owe him something, even though I've already <laughs> bought the books. For one dollar from the bargain bin at Half Price Books. <laughs> that's, that where I, that's
0: where I got. I, did, I paid full price for Anathem, but everything else I got like at Half Price Books. Yeah, pretty much. Because I, I have the entire Baroque Bitcoin. Cycle. I have Cryptonomicon. I've got Snow
2: Crash.
1: I wish all of uh, the Baroque Cycle were on Audible. Um, I, I've got I got Anathem on there unabridged, but I'm
2: pretty sure it is. My roommate. No, Quicksilver huh? is on
1: Audible abridged. And that's okay. the only thing on there. Snow Crash is on there, unabridged.
2: my roommate has an Audible account, and, and uh, I don't know whether he was investigating an Audible account or was, whether it was just an audio book of the entire Baroque cycle, uh, cycle but he's saying it was like 140-hour collection. Oh, unabridged,
1: I imagine. It, it actually, it might be out there, not on Audible, but, but mm. elsewhere. Um, that's unfortunate. Yeah,
0: don't use Audible. I just have to say that. Why DRM not? sucks.
1: What do you have against Audible, Kevin?
0: DRM sucks.
1: I, it's never been can a problem you, for me. It's Wait. never
0: been a problem for you, but that's because you've not done anything that they don't want you to do. As we were talking before the show started about the Kindle, about how Amazon, who owns Audible, can make books disappear off your Kindle, who's to say they can't do the same for audiobooks if they so desire? Um
1: the, well, I you know with the DRM I can see them doing that. I have the that's, actual file on my computer, uh, you know, in which You is have not a the file on your computer
0: yeah. that is playable until Amazon says it's not.
2: Well, um, there are ways to circumvent this if you really yeah, care. There are there was there was a ways to get around rip. DRM. I'm I'm not
0: saying that there's not ways to get around DRM. Mm-hmm. I'm saying I have a lot of trouble supporting a business where I purchase something in air quotes without actually owning it and being able to do what I choose with it.
2: Yeah. Point taken.
1: I still so I, I
0: just have to speak out against Audible every time Stephen speaks up again in, in favor of it.
1: <laughs> well, I speak up in favor of it because, for me, it's it's one of the best ways to read. Um, it's convenient. I can put it on my iPod. I can, I can read in the car, walk into class, whatever. Um, now, however, do you have, like, an alternative uh, place to get audiobooks online that, that is not DRM-protected?
0: There are places out there, and it's a matter of... Um, <laughs> hey,
1: that's not piracy, just, to be, just to be clear. <laughs> no, I'm not
0: saying Sorry. that there's necessarily other options. I don't know. I've not looked. But that doesn't mean that the options that exist are, are better. Or, or that there can't be better options, that's what I'm trying oh, to say. Oh, no,
1: I agree that there can be better models. I, mm. I would be yeah. in favor of, like, an Amazon bookstore, audiobook store. There, um, there
0: is. It's called Audible.
1: Oh, yeah, because Amazon does own Audible. Damn. Yeah.
0: So uh, it, which is weird,
1: because I mean, Amazon's MP3 store is completely DRM- free. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And of course, Amazon is not selling books or sells books via Audible with lots and lots of DRM. Yeah.: Yeah, <laughs> uh, because that's what Audible had, and Amazon bought Audible and said, "Yeah, we'll keep that." Mm-hmm. And as we've seen, Amazon is not as often a, is not as awesome with DRM. as you would like them to be. Mm. as we've seen with the Kindle yeah so it's it's one of those real tricky things and i I uh, hope
2: that the market will speak eventually and That's and actually
0: funny thing it's actually doing that with the Kindle right now. a lot of Kindle owners are are upset with Amazon with charging so much for uh their digital books mm-hmm. because they cost nothing uh it's all profit for amazon yeah, and, it is and um, well they do the, have
1: to they have to to subsidize the um the cell phone connection, um, which is again
0: minimal yeah a, very minimal but what the what Amazon has been doing, my father again owns a kendo, so I catch all this from him uh is when a new book comes out they 'll charge you the hardcover price until it goes into paperback, in which case the digital copy will then be the paperback price okay. for because it's a a digital substitution book. product
1: yeah
2: there, there's a reason these things happen. I don't have access to Amazon's, uh, you know, spreadsheets and their their market information, but they've determined that this pri- uh, market, this pricing structure is is profitable for them, and yeah. they don't, they shouldn't change it until uh, they start losing uh, customers, well, uh, which may it. happen, a and of, hopefully does happen.
0: A lot of Kindle customers have gotten together and are, and have a ten dollar book boycott. Huh. They will not purchase a book from Amazon that is over ten dollars. Oh wow, an ebook. Um and they're they're very vocal about it they contact authors um, and a lot of times the authors don't have as much control as they would like to have um, they
2: 're contractually obligated to do whatever their publisher wants yeah.
0: yeah which is which is really unfortunate because the content creators are not the content controllers which um, you know the exceptions being always out there, uh, Do- Cory Doctorow, being an example, who's worked at a very lucrative contract with Harper Collins, yes, and gives his books away.
2: But my God, is he preachy about
0: it? Oh, yes. yeah, he is. <laughs> I still like his books. Little Brother is one of the best novels I've read in the past. Couple I would love of years. to read that book.
2: Yeah, he. I mean, he. He. Uh, you he can get the it fuck for free out of it on, his, on his blog. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean that that phrase literally for a month. You would read nothing, but hey, my book's coming out. Ha <laughs> Oh, I'm
1: listening yeah, to. I, I realize his podcast right now. Uh, and and yeah, he's always saying, "Oh that's hey, little crap pound, d- crap pound." And and yeah. yeah, he's always saying, "Oh yeah, little brother got picked up in Turkey," and, and you know, oh, by the way, it's being performed here. And it well, actually
0: like... it won an award for best libertarian novel, two thousand. That's, <laughs> that's 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 cool. <laughs> it's cool, and it's it's a great book, and he's a good author, and yeah, he's preachy, but someone has to be. I'm in yeah. favor of idealists pushing the boundaries, being annoying because someone has to.
1: Yeah. And someday it will be the norm. Uh, you know, people like Cory Doctorow will be seen as those guys who took the first plunge, and yeah. uh, and set a precedent. And you know, we're we're very happy for them. Um, but so, so, getting back to to the subject of of, of Anathem and some of the concepts therein, um, I want to get y'all's opinion on how it sort of relates to our our current society. What what Stevenson is maybe trying to say about us? Um, for instance, I've heard from a few sources that the book is is sort of a uh, a rant against the prevalence of modern technology mm. um, in, in culture. Um, I didn't get that impression from the book, personally. I didn't think that was his central message. It definitely
2: wasn't his central message, but I did sense in uh, throughout the entirety of the book the talk about jingos or... or G-Jaws. g yeah. that's it, and how annoying they were and, and how...
1: Well, and how he got kind of transfixed with the, the spielies, the, the TVs yeah. everywhere, yeah.
2: Um, I have a problem with this thing, with these things, as well as, as Stevenson, um, I don't watch television, and I only barely use electronic forms of communication. I prefer to talk to people, you know, face to face. Right. But you know that that's a preference, not a rule. And uh, in the in the course of the book, what I understood as his main thrust of argument was that um, having a cell phone all around you always, uh, constantly checking your email, you, you just become preoccupied with communication instead of uh, real thought and production. Yeah. Now, um, a lot of a lot of our activities—going to Facebook every day, like five times, checking your email box constantly, at least. <laughs> uh, this, these are activities which we engage in because there's a feeling that we have to be able to respond immediately, and we waste a lot of time uh, not communicating but preparing to communicate yeah. and, and preparing to receive communications. And it seems to me that uh, the ratio of like work communicating to actual communicating is really large, whereas w- the idea of technology is to make our lives easier and to make us work less, and I don't want to waste my, you know, waking hours uh, checking email boxes constantly. Mm. I think it's below me, and I think it's wrong. And uh, It's and,
1: consistent with his philosophy, yeah. with, with like that, that don't bug me on, on technology uh, letter. Now, I'm not but. doing
2: anything important. I'm playing video games, but I have to play video <laughs> games to the limit, and I don't want to be bothered. Leave me alone. <laughs> I'm out of
1: here. What, what do you think of all that, Kevin?
2: Oh,
0: there's there's definitely some truth to that. Um, I, to, to make myself productive, sometimes I have to go lock myself in the bathroom with a notebook when I'm writing and things like that. I am very distraction prone, and I certainly know this. However, I like being distracted a lot of the times, too. I, I'm... Of the ability, I can control when I'm distracted and when I'm not I can turn my phone off I can leave my apartment yeah. I can go to the library I can sit in a dark room with a flashlight and a pen and cry until something happens <laughs> these things don't the, the technology is there and you know um, the something that was pointed out in the in Stephen's book was the, the pinpoint mats, the guy the one guy in a room mm-hmm. who just locks out the outside world for 100 years at a time mm. That's something that I can do on my own, not for 100 years at a time, but, you know, for for an hour, for a day. Um, Sometimes I don't leave my apartment for a week, which is kind of sad, but there you have it. Yeah. Um, It's lonely. But I get work done then without all the distractions that I can – and I can still enjoy the distractions when I do. I love TV. I have over 250 DVDs that I watch pretty regularly. Yeah. I like the distractions. They help me. They help me in different ways than sitting and thinking and reasoning for long periods of time. But I'm I'm much more creative um, in my pursuits. I'm not trying to understand the universe. I'm trying to write a play about a guy who's writing a play.
2: <laughs> exactly. A hey, meta play. If yeah. you're wrong. Oh, very, very oh, much so.
0: Very, very meta plays. Very meta. Um, well, and see, I, again, I think I'm a postmodernist.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and I, th- I think that was one of um, Stevenson's points, though, in the book was. Yes, we have this choice to distract ourselves or not, but given the choice, more often than not we make the choice to be distracted more than be productive. Um, There's a lot of truth in that. And that was kind of the reason for like the no technology in the mathic world or very little technology in the mathic world was so that they wouldn't have even that choice to be distracted if they wanted to. Mm. Um, Which is a
2: harsh, harsh choice. To make for yourself and deciding to join the content, but although they had different ways of
1: of distracting themselves, I mean the one project yeah. of of creating the the flower patterns Ugh. on the ground yes. that, that mimicked a, an ancient battle, I thought that was that was a wonderful wonderful thing, and um, I can see myself getting into that like as yeah. a, as a hobby. There's no you know there's no productive point in it really, mm-hmm. but it's uh, it's a way of sort of you know visualizing history. It's sort of a public art thing, you know. Um, it's, it's a fun distraction. Uh, there weren't really sports, per se, in no. the mathic world. That was another thing I noticed. Um, they
2: exercised and did calisthenics, but not really sports, yeah. I would say.
1: Everything they did was um, was productive in some way. The winding of the clock was exercise, mm-hmm. but it was also winding the clock. Um, the the various construction projects that were constantly
2: Gardening, going on. Gardening, Making yeah. food, et cetera, et cetera. Um,
1: everything seemed to have a purpose. And I think that's, uh, in a way, I guess, Stevenson was subtly telling us that maybe this is the lifestyle we should be living um, rather than this everything is provided for us, um, constantly connected sort of lifestyle.
0: I think he was more presenting an option. Okay, Um, yeah. The people in in the mathic world generally didn't look down on everybody else. That was just a different choice. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of them didn't didn't necessarily, I mean, they, they... were there because they wanted to be, and the people who weren't were there because they didn't want to be. Mm. And it wasn't, it was, you know, to, to misappropriate a term, it was separate but equal for a large <laughs> portion of the time. They didn't interact with each other. They didn't really care what was going on on the other side of the wall. The people in the secular world thought the people in the convents were weird and, you know, whatever. Let them do their oh. thing. At least they're not bothering me.
1: In fact, side note, one of the best parts of the novel, I think, were the um, the various iconographies, which were, were essentially like, packaged um, stereotypes that yes. people in the secular world had of the Avout, and the Avout would actually study them to and, and like be able to identify what iconography someone was using and relating to them so that they could understand and, and Manipulate. communicate Manipulate, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, there were, there were those who thought that they were like magical beings. There were those who thought they were crazy. Those, there were those who thought they were like religious. Kill us all. Yeah. It, it was, it's a very good point. I mean, we, we sort of have a way of compartmentalizing ourselves and, and, uh, and creating our own identities and, and even identities for other people so that we can understand them. Um, mm-hmm. but that's, you know, very, very much so. I, I think he was, he was saying many, many things in the book. And um, for someone to say, "Well, where the well, the book is about thinking in the long term, or the book is about um, mm-hmm. you know not having too much technology in our lives." Or the book is about oversimplica- science. That's an oversimplification. Way the, the, simple is f- the farthest from the, the term I would use to describe Anathem. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is a complex work,
0: but it's also a lot of fun.
1: It is. It is. Yeah. A, it's a very fun narrative, and I I know like Kevin, you have this thing about you know keep keep great works in their original medium, but I I was thinking a lot a lot of times of of visualizing it and I I think it would make a great either either miniseries or anime. Um, It it just kind of lends itself to that sort of episodic presentation of content. But the book itself is a fantastic read. And if if you got patience and if you've got sort of a scientifically uh, philosophically leaning I mean, mind. this isn't
2: Gödel-Escher-Bach level of patience. No. I still I still haven't <laughs> even tried. But um, as an as a as a an intermediate level Gödel-Escher-Bach. Yeah. Uh, yes, go for it, mm-hmm. please. Any uh, any final thoughts, Kevin?
0: Uh, what was what was Ben talking about? What were you saying? Gödel-Escher-Bach,
1: the uh, That's a uh, hotshot
0: Oh, I'm aware. I'm aware of
1: Gertel Escherbach.
0: Yeah. I've not read it, but you know, I'm it actually came it.
1: up in my music appreciation class the other day too. Yeah, I <laughs> that think, was the only think, person who had heard of it.
0: I think the occasional B.F. or Julie has mentioned it to me. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: uh,
1: hmm. it's one of it's, those that's like apparently you need intimate knowledge of music theory and mathematics and... Well, it was once like that back out.
2: in the 70s when it came out. These days, we have this wonderful information network um, <laughs> that allows us instant in t- uh, access to all this knowledge. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is the kind of book that you want to read with an internet connection with you at all times, but the thing <laughs> okay. that makes it different from Anathem is that Anathem is self-contained and you don't need it to is. be constantly breaking the narrative track by leaving the book. I read it in one day. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Um, I was it's, very It's not a terribly long book, is it? It's uh, and, oh, Go to Lesherbach, I haven't read. I, I no. Own it. No, An- Anathem, I
1: couldn't read in one day.
2: Anathem is what like 1200 pages. Yeah, I tore through it. I oh. I took a Saturday off and I read it all at once. Oh man. That's I
1: I couldn't even imagine. I I read it over the period of like two or three weeks in audio, but yeah. I read it on the bus. <laughs> it was, it's I a know, long one. No matter bus, no matter whip how it you out, read it
0: out read it on my way to class.
1: Yeah. Um, all right, gentlemen. Well, uh, we have come to the end of our time here on Bad Philosophy. Um, really want to thank you all for being on the show. I think we, we had some great comments oh, this from is a lot of fun. Turned into a, a little bit of This Week in Literature, but whatevs. We have a very diverse audience, and, and the, they know how we think. <laughs> I don't even know how we think. <laughs> exactly. If, if someone out there in the audience could give us a theory, what, what, what are we again? <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, Ben, thank you for being on the show. My we pleasure. Really appreciate thank it you very much, Stephen. Always good having you on here. Uh-huh. Um, where can we? Uh, where can people follow you?
2: I haven't blogged for a while, but I think I might start again. Oh, I'm a DJ at uh, the Yano Idea. I'm going to shamelessly plug this. Yeah, it's um, theanoidea.com. Two L's. It's it's l l a n o idea.com. We are basically what KTXT was. All the DJs and executive staff members left, and we started an internet radio station. And I host Evolution. Which is a political talk show Which is on every Tuesday From 7 to 8 And me and my co-host Sarah uh, Talk about whatever has been In the news in the past week And we give it our own spin And we have our little um, dialogue And it's really funny and silly and it's, the, it's the sister uh, show It's Metropolis Which is the comic book Slash nerd radio show <laughs> Also from 7 to 8 On the Uno Idea Anywho, the Yano Idea It's good music And whatever Check Shameless plug out. complete
1: Check it out And uh, Kevin Where can people follow you?
0: Uh, I'm on Twitter still, uh, Kevsond. Oh. I do blog, but you gotta search for it. You've uh, also
1: got a, a new thing going on uh, on YouTube, right?
0: Yeah, I'm doing my Kevin review something every day. Uh, I'm gonna try and do it for an entire year. That's a lot of work. <laughs> Just and generally, the, I I've had a few people who who've watched this thing say like, well, don't why are you always you know, have good reviews? You're always positive in your reviews. I'm like, well, I review things I like. Because
2: things <laughs> <Yeah>. like <that." laughs> if I'm gonna spend the money
0: if i'm gonna spend the money to buy it i'm probably gonna like it although there, there's today's review um is definitely negative i review the movie twilight which i watched last night oh i feel sorry for you man well i watched it i watched it with the riff tracks which helped although <laughs> i review the movie i review, review the movie on its own um i did watch it with the riff tracks and well, there's, an, there's a book that i'm in the middle of that will probably have a pretty negative review when i finish it so okay.
1: not, not the twilight book i i hope
0: no, no. Okay.
1: Different book. Yeah, but
0: that's uh, that's at uh, twitter.com slash All right. Uh,
2: I'm also on Twitter, twitter.com slash staircase wit.
1: That's me. I like that. Yeah. And finally, you can follow Bad Philosophy, the show itself, at twitter.com slash Bad Philosophy. You can follow me. I'm Stephen Torrance. I'm at twitter.com slash S T O R R E N C E. And, uh, well, thank you, everyone, for listening and watching. We'll see you next time on Bad Philosophy.
0: You're just in time to save the day.
2: Analemma? Yeah. That's a strange word. <laughs> Especially if you put a space in it, and, and it, it becomes even more awkward. Analemma. And I have a friend named Emma, and it's really weird. Oh! oh.
0: <laughs>
2: it made me cry. No.
1: Yeah. Bad Philosophy is brought to you by Skype Out and by Apple. Check out their offers through the affiliate section of our website.
0: BadPhilosophy.com Don't bother me, fanboy.